Father, we declare with this song, and which echoes from Scripture, that Christ alone is our refuge and strength. He alone is the rock and foundation for our lives. He alone is a sufficient sacrifice, and His blood alone is the atonement for our sins. Through Him alone do we find hope and salvation from the plague that has affected all of the human condition, namely the depravity that utterly and thoroughly, Lord, condemns us until and unless we are saved and resurrected from the death of sin unto new life in Christ. We declare that Christ alone is our hope and stay that salvation is only in and through Him, that there is nothing of our works that could contribute, but Christ alone in His grace is sufficient, is adequate to not only save us from our sins, but to grant us entrance unto glory, to continue to purify our heart, our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the call, to bring us even unto glory one day, wherein the fullness of our hope in the new covenant will be realized in perfect reunion with our Father in fellowship forever without end. We thank you, Lord, for these promises that we have in Holy Scripture. And I pray as we turn to the pages of your recorded word even now, that you would awaken our hearts, quicken our affections, and embolden our proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ that has been the case from ancient days, eternity past, until eternity future. There is one God in three persons, Christ our Savior and Lord, the second person of the Trinity. Him we worship this day because God our Father has planned for salvation for each of His own and the Holy Spirit Himself has applied these truths to our hearts. And so we pray that the Spirit would use even this message today to further enable us to clearly understand and consistently proclaim Your righteousness, Your works, and Your great salvation to the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's a great privilege and what a great blessing that we have today to be able to open the Scriptures together, to plead that the Spirit would give us, grant us the ability to understand what is there contained, that He might enable us to honor and to glorify our Lord the more fully as a result of using this service today as a tool in His hands. The title of this morning's message is Exceptional Grace. Exceptional Grace. This is a phrase to describe the experience and testimony, the calling and the favor upon Noah, who alone with his seven family members was saved from whole-scale destruction in the great flood. Genesis 6 is our text today, verses 1 through 10, which describe the conditions of the world as it was which were so judgment-deserving. The aim of this morning's message is to call us to exceptional holiness given the exceptional grace of our God. The calling, in part, the application of our text today is that we would live holy, lives separated unto the Lord, separated to proclaim Him, given and overflowing from the exceptional grace of our God shown to us in Christ our Lord, as we see pictured in the experience of Noah. With your Bible open to Genesis 6, would you stand for the reading of the Word today? And if someone could bring up the lights in the back, that would be great as well. Stand today, if you would, out of reverence for the Lord's Word, and let us consider the first portion of Genesis 6 today. Listen as verses 1 through 10 
are proclaimed in your hearing. Here we have the holy word of God. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Back a few verses at the end of Genesis 5, we identified, I guess briefly by way of intro, an analogy that is a good way, I think, to picture the way the chapter, uh, the book, the book of Genesis is structured, and as a microcosm of that, Genesis chapter 5. Think of a string with jewels upon that string as a necklace, perhaps a pearl necklace. You have the chain that threads through the jewels, and then the jewels fixed upon it in a line. This is something of an analogy to describe the structure, the way the book of Genesis has framed. Think of the record of the family line, the lineage, as it were, as a chain. And then upon that chain, different jewels. What would the jewels be? Events that are singled out, they're identified, they're featured, that illustrate the philosophy of history of the Word of God, namely time measured by the progress of redemption. So we have a chain of the lineage of the families uh, stemming all the way back from Adam, and then we have time measured by the progress of redemption and moments that feature uh, God's work through history as jewels on that chain. The last jewel of Genesis 5 is this prayer from Lamech. Lamech, it says in verse 28, had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name. Anyone know Lamech's son's name? This is the good Lamech. What's his name? Called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our hands and from the painful toil, <clears throat> relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. Verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that note of Noah and his sons is echoed at the end of our text today. Noah had three sons, verse 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if we think of this prayer, 
what I want us to note from Genesis 5, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work of our hands, from the painful toil of our hands. If we think of this prayer as a jewel marking the progress of redemption, how does that then relate to chapter 6? Well, this chapter in the Genesis saga is introduced with the poetry of another Lamech. So there are two Lamechs, you may recall, that we have studied thus far. The one is from the cursed line of Cain, the other is from the elect line of Seth. This man, this Lamech, we've just read his prayer, he was from the elect line. His contribution of faith in this narrative stands in stark contrast to the ancestor of Cain. Remember the testimony of Lamech, the legacy of Lamech from Genesis 4? He was the one who bragged to his wives, wives, plural, that he had just killed a man in cold blood. He said, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Though their names, they shared the same name, the testimony of their lives, their legacy could not be more different. Whereas evil Lamech celebrates his tyrannical exploits to his multiple wives as a god unto himself, Lamech, the father of Noah, holds out hope for deliverance from the curse of sin through a future son. So you get the difference? The Lamech from Cain's line celebrates his sin. The Lamech, who is the father of Noah, he prays and prophesies that a future son would deliver them from the curse of sin. The one is an embrace of sin. The other is hope and salvation from sin. This Sethite hope appears threatened by increasing wickedness, however, as the storm clouds of judgment gather. A huge judgment event is on the horizon. Kids, do you know what's going to happen very soon? The flood, a storm, a flood, exactly. So huge storm clouds are gathering on the horizon of judgment. And this appears to threaten the answer to Lamech's prayer just on the surface of things. But, uh, and especially as we consider that nearly all of humanity becomes increasingly swallowed up by their depravity. Their depravity marked, their sin marked by this God-rejecting hedonism. Hedonism means to pursue without regard to morals and ethics that which we prefer in the flesh, that which makes us happy in the moment, not that which glorifies the Lord. And if you follow your base nature, your sinful self, with every desire it presents to you, you'll create the most wicked world imaginable, and that's exactly what was happening. Mankind, however was not left without hope. Yes, God would, God will raise up a deliverer in the context of the historical milestone of which we find ourselves in Genesis 6. God will raise up a deliverer and an instrument of salvation in answer to the Sethite Lamech's cry. And the account of the great flood, flood thus begins by reminding the reader of the holiness of God and what, uh, righteousness, and what righteousness demands given a world almost completely overtaken by sin and where hope can be found under these conditions. And it's pictured in Noah. So that's a brief introduction and context. Next we have a heading. Coming judgment introduced by way of three main points this morning. So Moses, the author of Genesis, introduces coming judgment by way of number one, a summary declaration. And that would be Genesis 6, 1 through 3. It's kind of a brief uh, proclamation of the situation as it is and the judgment it deserves. 
And next we have a specific explanation, more detail. It's gone into in verses 4 through 7. And then finally, in our text today, we have a merciful exception, verses 8 through 10. There would be one and his family spared from what is about to come. So let us consider our text today along these lines. Coming judgment introduced by way of a summary declaration. Genesis 6, 1 through 3. We have this record, this sovereign inspired record of the history that immediately preceded the judgment of God by way of whole scale flood. Quote, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Just uh, put your thumb, if you would, in Nehemiah 13. I have a cross-reference that we'll touch upon in a moment. Uh, Nehemiah 13. As you're turning there, consider the following. At issue here is what uh, some have called in theology an antithesis. Um, An antithesis is the the polar opposite, two uh, mutually exclusive ideas in conflict with one another. If we go back to Genesis 3.15, which is our most often cited text because it's so central to all Scripture, including Genesis, of course, we have this testimony. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then this messianic promise, prophecy, he, speaking of Christ, shall bruise your head, and you, speaking to Satan, shall bruise his heel. But before that messianic prophecy, notice this antithesis. Uh, Two factions at enmity or at war and conflict with one another. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Two categories of humanity. One, the offspring of the serpent. The other, the offspring of the woman. So this is the reality of things. Well, this idea is picked up again in the language of Genesis 6. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, um, daughters were born to them. And then notice verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So may I submit to you that here we have a kind of two-faction or a, a recognition of the antithesis. We have sons of God and we have daughters of man. Sons versus daughters, God versus man. You see how the language illustrates the difference or differences between these two factions. However, something shocking and disturbing is taking place. There is a co-mingling of what should otherwise be separate, which I think is the main thrust here. There is something disturbing going on that is contributing to the wickedness of the land, and that is to say that the godly line is not maintaining its distinction, its clarity, its separation, its holiness, The preservation of the line is threatened of the Messiah if the sin that is uh, swallowing up the world, as it were, were allowed to continue. Therefore, God will intervene. This is a reality throughout all of Scripture that is maintaining this distinction and difference between those who are of the covenant of promise and those who are of the world. We'll close this message this morning with an application from Corinthians along these lines. But I just want to note another time in Scripture where this is dramatically illustrated. And this is Nehemiah 13, 23. Notice what is going on here. 
These are reforms that Nehemiah is initiating. Why? Because the Jews had been taken into captivity. They had lost a lot of their identity and distinction as a people of God. And now it's time for them to repent, to return to land, rebuild the temple, and maintain their distinctive godliness. But not everybody was obedient to this call. So listen to what happens. Verse 23. In those days also, Nehemiah in the first person, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, what do you guys think about that? How, how's that for a punishment for breaking God's law? Yes. Nehemiah confronted them, he cursed them, beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. Pretty intense. Do you think this situation was significant enough to warrant this action? He goes on, And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters to your sons, or, to, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? In other words, Nehemiah is saying, why do you think you are in the position you're in? Why do you think we entered exile? It, it was because we forgot the covenant, were disobedient to the Lord, did not maintain our faithfulness, our fidelity to Him. We broke His law and we began to lose what it meant to be separate, set apart, a holy people, distinct because we follow a different God, a different Lord, different values, a different culture. And because you are assimilating, assimilating with the pagan peoples around you, you threaten to find yourself in the same shoes again. So I'm going to pull out your hair and curse you and confront you until you wake up to the danger of your wicked ways. And let me tell you, if pulling out their hair actually worked to wake up these sinners, it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Among the, he goes on, Among the many nations there was no king like him, namely Solomon. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, Foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So in the context here, it's not uh, so much that the women are foreign to their experience as far as ge geography is concerned. It is substantially the fact that these women, these other families, these other peoples are foreign to the covenant of the Lord. They're unbelievers, they're pagans, they're sinners, they're idolaters. But in mingling in their alliance and compromising their relationship with the Lord for the promise of a romantic relationship with their neighbors, what they are doing is putting themselves in a very dangerous position. This was at issue in Nehemiah's day. It was at issue in Noah's day. This was the main problem. Sons of God we're marrying daughters of men. This language emphasizes two parties that ought to re remain diametrically opposed unless the party in sin repents. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent is the language that we recall here. There is a necessary and essential distinction that is threatened to be lost on account of intermingling and intermarrying, fraternizing with the pagan world. So this is a summary declaration. This is the problem as it is recorded here. An example of the sinful conditions that are precipitating the flood of Noah. Point number two, the language of saw and took. Verse two, 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they choose. The structure of this verse, commentators have noted, is identical to another passage you may remember. Turn over to Genesis 3. There is another, if you will, saw and took moment in the first temptation of man. Genesis 3, 6, Eve is contemplating eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The enemy has, thus t- has tempted her along these lines. And here's what happens. So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what did she do? She ate the fruit and more specifically, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So you see in Genesis 3, 6, that language of saw and take. She saw that the food was tempting, was good to eat, she took it. In the same way, in our passage today, the sons of God, as it were, saw that the daughters of men were tempting, were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they choose. So as we compare this language, we see what Moses is getting at. There is sin that is pictured here. It is classically, it's a classically sinful situation. Any time that we are ruled by our base desires, by our flesh, when we just, without thinking, without prayer, without considering God's Word, without considering His law, His righteousness, if we just take what we see and like, then we are falling into a similar trap. The Word of God calls to our attention to have discernment. When you're in a world full of temptation, before you see and take, consider the Word of God. Consider what he has said, of any tree of the, of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, representative of that forbidden fruit of sin, you must not eat. On the day you do so, you shall surely die. We won't turn there this morning for the sake of time, but mark in your own, for your own study Judges 14, 1 through 3. Judges 14, 1 through 3. This is the story of Samson. Samson was a very passionate, dramatic figure. And he illustrates some of these weaknesses in his own testimony. In this passage, he saw that the women of the the daughters of the Philistines, who were they? Enemies of God's people, outside the covenant, lawbreakers, idolaters. They were at enmity. They were of the seed of the serpent. But he was called as a judge to be, as it were, in the lineage of the seed of the woman. But what did he do? He saw that the children, that the daughters of the Philistines were beautiful, were attractive, and so he took from them, he manipulated the situation to take from himself a wife. Did Samson's life work out so well? No. He eventually found himself with the source of his strength cut off, incarcerated in a foreign land, made a mockery by his enemies, and grinding mill, and eventually the most good he did in his life was when he took his own in collapsing a temple where thousands of idolaters worshiping and so forth. But as you mark the progress and as you note the failures in Samson's life, it's because he didn't take the Scriptures as seriously as he ought to have taken them, especially Genesis 6 when it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And so the consequences are, and this leads us to the final point under a summary declaration, the consequences are God declaring, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 
120 years. So in this summary declaration, we have basically three things. The antithesis, the author clarifying, note the difference between the covenant with God and the paganism of the world, and to the degree that that difference is blurred, then you're in big trouble. Secondly, note that the activity of the people during this time was to see and to take, just like original sin. And thirdly, there are consequences, judgment that is worthy of this kind of action. And these consequences are stated in this way, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Turn over to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 2. Can someone quote it for me? The earth was without without form and Anyone know the rest? And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Kids, you remember that verse? So note the activity of the Holy Spirit in creation in the first place. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You get this picture, don't you? of a globe, uh, as it were, covered with formless and void and chaotic seas or waters. But the Holy Spirit was present. And what was the consequence, the fruit of the Holy Spirit hovering over this expanse? The Spirit in Hebrew, Ruach, hovered over the uh, formless void, as it were, the face of the waters, and the creation week ensues. As the Spirit broods over the surface of the world, he calls forth life from the formless void. Uh, and then we go to our text today. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. You could frame the uh, difference, the contrast between these two verses this way. If the consequence of the Holy Spirit's brooding activity and life-giving uh, influence on the globe is to call forth life and order and land from the chaotic seas, what will be the consequences of the Ruach, the Spirit of God, lifting His hand from the globe? You probably guessed it. It will be flooded with seas again. The waters will cover the earth. It will return in some sense, in this picture anyway, to the uh, face of the earth covered with the waters of the formless void in this act of judgment. And so you see what is communicated here is serious. It has a number of lessons for us. Number one, everything is held together by a personal, active, triune God. And without the sovereign, imminent hand and providence of Almighty God in His Spirit, everything would descend into a state of entropy, chaos, and disorder. It is the Lord who upholds this world, this universe, in the palm of His hand. What of those who take it for granted? Those who take the sovereign hand of the Lord for granted, who do not recognize and worship and seek Him for salvation from their own sinful, chaotic heart, that the Spirit might brood over the face of the formless void of the human soul and create life where there is no life. For those who do not do that, do not recognize, do not value, do not affirm that it is the Spirit that holds us and the world together, then judgment is what they can expect. And this is the picture in our text today, a summary declaration. Judgment is introduced in these terms. 
And so having set the tone, we move to point number two. After a summary declaration, we have a more specific explanation. Coming judgment is introduced to us in these specific ways. Now, this is 4 through 7, verses 4 through 7, some of the most uh, difficult and complex, uh, at least to understand, I should say, controversial texts in the Scripture, as far as I know. And I will give you my interpretation, but you can take it and test it. And I'll try to uh, show my work by comparing it to good rules of hermeneutics, which means studying a text according to its own terms. And uh, then we'll seek to draw out what Moses may be getting at from there. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Let's pause there. I'd like to give you an exegesis, phrase by phrase, of verse 4. And this is just fruit of my own study, uh, standing on broader shoulders than mine in, in uh, biblical academics. And I think, and this is the best stab at an interpretation of this verse. The Nephilim, first of all. Who are they? I think contextually we can make a strong case that the Nephilim are tyrants akin to Lamech of Genesis 4, infamy. These would be city builders, ancient kings, and they would have been seen as agents of the gods in the pagan world around them. So two verses or two passages in context along these lines. Because the world is descending into sinful chaos, it stands to reason that the legacy of Lamech is ruling the day. And who was Lamech? He was a tyrant and he was a, uh, and a philanderer. Lamech said to his wives, he took more than one, so he's committed this sin of a lust and as such as entered into polygamy. More than this, he murders a man, he kills him for wounding him, and then he brags about it all. And so we see the rise of men like Lamech, who are a law unto themselves, at least that's the posture, and thus they are wicked and, and uh, try to establish a rule in the place of the Lord. We also see in the lineage of men like this, city builders. Cain knew his wife, she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. We know that this was in disobedience to the Lord, who told him that the, price, the consequence of his sin is what he was condemned to be a wanderer. Nevertheless, these strong, influential men sought to make a name for themselves by building cities. Note Genesis 10, this is just by way of context. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That language of mighty man echoes our text, Genesis 6, 4. Um, Therefore, he said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So Nimrod, another city or kingdom builder. And then, of course, chapter 11 gives us the account of Babel itself, which is the fruit of this kind of disregard and rebellion against the Lord. So the Nephilim, directly in our context this morning, refer to men who are prominent, mighty. They could have been gigantic in stature. There were Nephilim that were gigantic who are referred to in Numbers 13.33. But they are these imposing figures most likely, and in the immediate context of our verse, they are described further as mighty men who are of old men of renown. Okay, So Nephilim, tyrants akin to Lamech, were on the earth in those days. 
So that's, I note there that this was a pre-existing condition. So the Nephilim were there. It stands to reason if these are uh, of the lineage and legacy of Lamech. There were these imposing tyrants and so forth. And also afterward. After what? Probably the flood. Genesis, or Numbers, excuse me, 13.33 testifies to this. The name Nephilim is used again to describe the giants. That would be men of old and renowned and mighty men that were in Canaan that uh, the Israelites saw as a threat as they entered into the promised land. So these Nephilim were there before and after the flood when, and here we have a time notation identifying contemporary events, not necessarily otherwise related. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And I take the children to them to mean they bore children to the daughters of man, not necessarily bore children to the Nephilim. And then it says, these were the mighty men who have old men of renown. And so this would return then, the referent would be Nephilim. So in summary, this is my best understanding of this verse. The world was plagued by tyrants who characterized the sinfulness of the hour. They were associated with idolatry and tyranny, uh, and they were beginning to be more and more influential. During this time, the line of Seth began to corrupt itself more and more by intermarriage into cultures that were defined and ruled and controlled by the Nephilim. And therefore, we have this increasing problem. Think of the Nephilim as it were of our day. What are the most uh, powerful, influential, formidable figures in our culture? Who are the mighty men that write the news posts, that make the movies, that uh, curate you know, the uh, uh, narratives, that rule the industries, that uh, promote values in higher education, so on and so forth. I believe the concept of the Nephilim is still a reality today if we understand it principally. There are figureheads who set themselves up in the place of God to draw people's attention away from the covenant and from true hope in Christ. They like to build cities and their goal, the ideal, is Babel, to establish a place, a heaven on earth, a security and a name from themselves, exclusive from the Lord, independent of Him. What happens to cities like Babel? What happens to cities like Babel? They get destroyed. God comes and in His judgment, He confuses the languages. What happens to global empires that exalt themselves above the knowledge of the Lord, that rule by another standard than Jesus Christ, they eventually are destroyed. Psalm 73 tells us of the Nephilim, as it were, that the psalmist almost lost faith because he thought to himself, if God is Lord, then why do these wicked men live such a long time and command so much influence? He said, I went to the sanctuary and I discerned their end. You set them in slippery places. Spurgeon has a picture. He says, the Nephilim, if you, if you will, are like crustaceans, like clams. God's providence is like the eagle. He grasps it in his claws and raises that the wicked high, high in the air. And at the ascent, the wicked gloat. And they claim that they are 
uh, more powerful than the Lord, and they exalt themselves like Nebuchadnezzar as one who ought to be worshipped, only to find themselves when God in His sovereignty releases His clutches to fall hundreds and thousands of feet to be dashed upon the cliffs. And then, of course, the eagle swoops down and eats the muscle inside. This is a picture of God's sovereignty over evil. It's a great reminder to us that in spite of forces that seem so formidable and that seem to be so dominant in any period of time in history, there is a day of reckoning on the horizon. Hence, we have this specific explanation that though there be Nephilim, if you will, there is a more powerful force still, and that is the God of the seas, the God of the flood, the God of judgment, and indeed, the God of our salvation. We go on in verse 5. Lest we blame all the sin on the Nephilim, this is what we find by further explanation. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here we have from the beginning pages of Scripture, testimony to the doctrine of the depravity of man, the whole-scale corruption of the human soul. Romans 3 echoes this, does it not? With descriptive language, which is also a quotation. The venom of asps, that is, a poisonous snakes, is under the tongue of everyone. Everyone is condemned in their sin. We are together worthless. We are together rendered enemies unless our heart is changed. This is the default state of man in his sinful condition. This is the sin in which David testified, he among all other children born of Adam are conceived. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the coming judgment is introduced by way of specific explanation. Influential forces that are encouraging people into a, a, a darker and darker culture of sin. And secondly, the depravity of man, which renders each individual guilty of falling short of the glory of God. This is a crisis. We compare these events uh, to the rest of Scripture, and we compare these events to our own day. We ought to see principles here again. These are things that are written for our instruction for all time. And then finally, two more quick points under a specific explanation. We move from verse 5 to 6 and 7. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Twice in those two verses, we see a reference to the Lord regretting, in some translations, or here expressing sorrow. He is sorry that He has made man on the earth. We also see reference to the Lord's, uh, uh, something like uh, His emotions with respect to this condition are spoken of as grieving Him to His heart. This brings up an important point. How are we to understand these verses in light of the immutability that is the unchangeable character of God. And what sense does the Bible mean that God regrets something or that He is sorry for something? Uh, further reference for you on this point, again, these are uh, 
com- these are complicated ideas on the surface, but with the context of greater Scripture, it becomes clear. Mark in your notes, 1 Samuel 15. There's two verses in particular. The whole chapter is instructive, but 28 and 35. And that passage, uh, the prophet Samuel, as I recall, proclaims that God is not a man that he should lie, and God is not a man that he would be sorry or regret anything. Yet in the same passage... God is spoken of as having regretting crowning King Saul. I am sorry that I have made Saul king. Is this a contradiction? No, it is not. It's rather a qualification by context. Note, this is a qualification by context of the sense in which regret is attributed to God. In what sense can we say God is sorry for something? In what sense can we say, or does the Bible say that God regrets something? And here's the difference. Man experiences regret on account of his limitations. I'm sorry I did that. If we say I'm sorry for something, what are we admitting? We didn't know the consequences. It was wrong. We knew better. So by some limitation, we regret we are sorry. We didn't know the future. We were unwise. We could have done a better job. We fell short of our standards for ourselves or God's standard for us. So man experiences regret on account of his limitation. But not so with God. God expresses regret to make known His character and intentions. Man experiences regret. God expresses regret. One is reacting to the situation. The other is proactive, if you will. So this is a way that God communicates to us His personal nature. He uses language of emotion that we can understand. But we are not to think of Him as like a man on account of these references, um, like we would regret something, but we are to think of him as a personal being who is involved in his creation, who interacts in such a way that is interrelational. So this is evident in our text today. The Lord was sorry that he had made man and it grieved him to his heart. And by this, God is expressing regret to make known his character and intentions. His character, namely his holiness. The reason God is displeased with the state of man is God is holy and perfect and man is sinful and depraved. The reason God is sorry that he he made man in this sense is he has intentions to judge, to bring judgment and correction, both judgment and salvation, on account of this situation. So I hope you can follow that. Uh, Would you like to know the technical term for this concept that we're talking about? So don't be intimidated by this this, uh, smart-sounding word. It's anthropopathism. Anthropopathism. Does anyone know what the definition of anthropopathism is? So anthropomorphism is related. It's to ascribe human qualities to something that's not human. Anthropopathism is to ascribe human uh, emotions to someone who is not human. So an anthropopathism is an, an attributing to God an emotion that a human can relate to while understanding it's limited in its application because God is fundamentally different than us. So you can mark that down and press someone with your knowledge later. Finally, there's a scope that we see here. God says, on account of what he will do in light of man's transgression, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, and so forth. And it's important to note that the consequences of sin reach farther than our immediate circumstances. 
Because man is the caretaker by God's decree, by God's uh, uh, delegating to him, delegated responsibility of the earth, when man sins, the creatures suffer, his environment suffers, and so forth. This is related to the concept of blood guilt that we saw in Lamech. When man transgresses God's law, he takes innocent blood. We think of abortion in our land. When he takes the lives of the innocent in cold blood unjustly, the land is cursed on account of his wickedness. These are the consequences we see here, again, reiterated. This brings up our final point this morning. Coming judgment introduced by way of a summary declaration, specific explanation, and finally, here is the hope, a merciful exception. Not everyone and not everything and not every animal will be destroyed. This verse should stand out like a beacon, like a lighthouse in the darkness, like the hope uh, pulsating with the gospel, with the seed of the gospel that will burst forth into life through the pages of Scripture. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was sorry that he had made man in the sense that we've described, and God had intentions and a will to judge all of them with eight merciful exceptions. Noah and his family. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If we read in context here, it would appear that Noah might deserve this favor, but don't, uh, be, but don't misunderstand. The favor of the Lord that is spoken here is the unmerited favor. It is the grace of the Lord. It does say in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons and so forth. So there's a recognition of blamelessness and righteousness that attended Noah's testimony. But this is on account of the Spirit of God upon him. This is the fruit of Noah's calling. This is the fruit of the Spirit upon Noah. This is evidence of the unmerited favor and the mercy of the Lord upon His chosen one. We know this in context. Noah was a sinner. Later in the text, as Genesis unfolds, we find evidence to that fact. Insofar as the Scriptures say Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation, what is represented here is covenant headship. Insofar as Noah is presented as the righteous exception, he represents the covenant headship of Christ. So there is a type of Christ to a degree in the office or in the uh, the, uh, calling of Noah. However, in the greater context, we understand that this merciful act is is by grace alone. This is ultimately true with respect to Noah Individually, if it wasn't for the mercy and grace of God, Noah would not be saved. Noah did not deserve salvation any more than the world deserves salvation. After all, we've just read the thoughts and intentions of his, namely mankind's heart generally, was only evil continually. So if there was any exception to that, it was because God uh, bestowed his favor upon Noah. This recalls the language of the calling of Seth uh, that we see in the heart cry of Eve. We've referenced it several times. Eve says in Genesis 4.25, she bore a son and called his name Seth, which is closely related and probably means appointed in the original language, Seth meaning appointed one. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, 
for Cain killed him. Eve recognized hope represented in Seth was based upon the mercy and grace of God appointing a deliverer that would point forward to the ultimate deliverer to come. Lamech recognized this with his son. Remember, we opened with this, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one, namely Noah, his boy. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That prophecy didn't come true fully in Noah's day, but it came true fully through the son of the son of the son and so on of Noah, Jesus Christ. And so, these are the generations of Noah we find a new chapter of God's saving work. Remember, time measured by the progress of redemption. This is going to be a jewel that tells us something of God's nature and character, intervening in grace and mercy, showing favor upon His appointed one, the deliverer who will bring the instrument of salvation to rescue His people and to preserve the seed of the Messiah to come, even through the waters of global judgment. Noah was favored of the Lord. He was the merciful exception. Again, we see the formula, these are the generations of Noah. This signals a covenant milestone. There would be a covenant made with Noah. He would be a covenant representative, a covenant head in the line, if you will, of God's promises marching through history. A new family line, just like Seth, would be appointed through Noah. And through him, yes, indeed, the Savior would come. And even through him, Indeed, the world would be repopulated. And so, just as Seth was called forth in an era of corruption to preserve God's plans of salvation, so Noah and his family would do the same. We'll find how that is done as our narrative unfolds in future weeks. And finally, this morning, under merciful exception, we see language that echoes the experience of Enoch. It says, Noah walked with God. You remember what was unique about Enoch, another jewel on the string of lineage in Genesis 5.22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were, does anyone know? 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. What does Enoch represent? A restoration of fellowship. Enoch walked with God, meaning that he shared the same space in the presence of the Lord, abiding in his favor. No one knew something of this as well. Last week I mentioned that Enoch's walking, the the language there is unique to him in the original language that is true. There's a highly specific way it says that Enoch walked with God, and this is echoed of the priest later. Nevertheless, generally speaking, Noah shared something of his experience. He also walked with God. In other words, because God had favor upon Noah, because he was the merciful exception to the judgment that would come, he shared a relationship, a closeness with the Lord. And this closeness was marked by hearing the word of God, by grace to obey, by endurance as he built his ark in spite of the corrupt world around him. For, as I take it, 120 years, as we see even in our text today, and so on and so forth, all the while, as Peter testifies, calling the lost unto repentance, just as Jude testifies, Enoch did the same. These are marks of God's favor upon a remnant, upon His appointed ones, upon His elect line, among those who are specifically called out to show forth His praise. Do you walk with God? Can you say that you walk alongside 
if you will, Noah and Enoch in restored fellowship. Turn with me in closing to 2 Corinthians. In close of this message, let us recognize that God has extended exceptional grace unto us through Jesus Christ who saves us. Those who are in the ark were saved, just as those who are in Christ today are ultimately saved from the corruption of this world due to sin. Furthermore, if this is your experience, if this has happened to you, if you have experienced salvation in your ark, Jesus Christ, as it were, how then ought you act? We ought to heed the message from our text in Genesis 6 today to maintain that distinction. Remember the aim of this message? To call us to exceptional holiness given the exceptional grace of our God. 2 Corinthians, New Testament book, has something to say to this effect. This is 2 Corinthians 6. Instructions are given to the church. Some of these, no doubt, you'll remember as we read familiar texts. For the love of Christ controls us. I wonder if it's 1 Corinthians 6 that I'm looking for. Let me back up to 1 Corinthians 6. Yes, it is. I apologize. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. And God, uh, and God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Uh, earlier in the text, he talks about how neither sexually immor- uh, the deceived, or do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is one of those many calls in the Scripture unto holiness. There is a reminder even in the New Testament context that separation from the world, do not be unequally yoked, Paul goes on to say in other texts. Come out from the, among them, be separate, maintain a testimony of distinction. This is not to say that we need to shelter and huddle away because of, from the world as if they did not exist. But it is to say that if we are to reach a lost world with a powerful message of salvation, if we are to maintain in the consistency of our life the testimony of the gospel, then we will embrace a truth-proclaiming lifestyle. And we will apply the exhortation in Moses and Noah's day, the exhortation in Nehemiah's day, the exhortation in Paul's day to maintain that distinction. Live as one who has been saved from the corrupt world. Put on, as Paul says in Colossians, we referenced in our men's group recently, those things which are above, those things which are becoming to the redeemed individual. And so as we do so, we will walk in a way, as Paul has said, a manner worthy of our call, and we will maintain the ability to call the lost unto repentance, and we will hold forth in our confession and in our deeds, 
hope in Jesus Christ in a world that's falling apart around us. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the testimony, for the lessons of Scripture. We thank you for the exaltation of Christ our Lord as the Messiah in whom is the hope for every generation. We thank you that you have chosen so many beautiful, manifold ways to illustrate in the course of history your plan for the salvation of mankind. I pray that these would uh, burst forth from the pages as jewels that we might behold and appreciate, treasure, and proclaim. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to live in a way distinct and set apart, calling us to lives that are commensurate with the newness of Christ that you have blessed and graced us with. As we do so, I pray that we would hold out hope for salvation in Jesus Christ, proclaiming to a wicked world under the corruption of their sin that in Christ alone is salvation. Lord, I pray that you would grant us faithfulness and endurance in this wicked day. And as we await your return, and as we await your judgment, either in this life or in the next, we confess that you are our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, and the only hope for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.